From the studios of the Optimism Institute, welcome to the Blue Sky Podcast. I'm your host, Bill Burke, and in every Blue Sky episode, we'll be speaking to leaders, researchers, and thinkers whose stories and insights will remind us that there is always blue sky above. Sometimes you just have to get your head above the clouds to see it. I'm going to start this episode with a quick trivia question. What does Kelly Clarkson have in common with yours truly? The full answer is not a whole lot, but both Kelly and I were fortunate to host today's Blue Sky guest on our show. Jonathan Conyers has a remarkable story that he tells beautifully in his new book, I Wasn't Supposed to Be Here, which was released on September 5th. In addition to being a newly published author, Jonathan Conyers is also the founder of Conyers Media and the host of the Professional Winner podcast. He sits on the board and helps run the Brooklyn Debate League, a nonprofit whose mission is to bring speech and debate to at-risk communities. And he also works as a respiratory therapist, specializing in neonates and pediatrics at New York University Langone Hospital, and was on the front lines doing this work throughout the COVID crisis. Jonathan has been featured in the New York Times, the Washington Post, the aforementioned Kelly Clarkson Show, and now he's reaching new heights on the Optimism Institute's Blue Sky Podcast. Oh well, a guy can dream. Anyway, I hope you enjoy this conversation with Jonathan Conyers as much as I did. Jonathan Conyers, welcome to the Blue Sky Podcast. Hey, how you doing today, Bill? I'm fantastic. I've read your book. I wasn't supposed to be here is the title. It is fantastic. And uh, you are supposed to be on this podcast because your story is so hopeful and uplifting. And I'm really pleased to have you on. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Thank you for taking the time to read my book. Of course. I hope it wasn't a waste of your time. I hope you enjoyed it. (laughs) (laughs) Not Uh, at all. And, And I'll interpret the title uh, to say that, you know, given your background, one might suggest you shouldn't have done as well as you did. You were not supposed to do this well. So let's, if we could, if I have that right, let's start with your background. And two people in the book I found just fascinating happened to be your mom and dad. And they're an interesting story for a lot of reasons. They had so many struggles and yet they really wanted to raise good kids. C- can you talk about that, what the early years were like in your mom and dad? Yeah, my uh, parents were addicted to crack cocaine. And I don't want to say was, uh, they're still battling that um, situation in their life. Um, however, they're doing much better. And I'm super proud of them. Um, but throughout the book, I share a lot of tough stories. I share a lot about our journey. Um, I share a lot about things that I went through. Uh, because of their addiction, because they were going through so much where they didn't have the time to provide me my necessities. They didn't have the time to be adequate parents and role models that I needed to survive and thrive in this world. But throughout their shortcomings and a lot of the misfortunes that they had to deal with, they highlighted the importance of education. Um, My mother used to walk the highways of Virginia to make a parent-teacher conference. She never missed one. My dad would do drugs all week, but he never misworked. He built he built so many communities and was a construction worker throughout Virginia. Um, a great chef and always taught us the importance of hard work. 
education was ring throughout my ear. They always talked about it with my siblings. They always created an open space and dialogue for us to be able to articulate ourselves, to say how we felt. And I thank them for that. And I know throughout the book, it kind of saddens me because, you know, when you're just telling the truth, I know once the memoir comes out, the world is open to their own opinion on their story and how they perceive my parents. But I hope throughout the book, even with their downfall, even with some of the horrible things that I had to go through and that they did, I hope people understand that they have their own journey and that addiction is complicated. And it's not like the movies where everybody is begging and just asking for money or living in these horrible settings where there are people who are addicted that raise families. There are people who are addicted that who care about their children, who care about education. And I always tell people, uh, lightning don't strike five times. You know, I have five, I have four siblings. I'm the youngest of five. And we all have degrees. We're all homeowners. Throughout my parents' shortcomings, they had to do something right. Bill, they had to do something right. And in my book, I wanted to highlight that. And I don't know if it's blatantly obvious that they were unique characters. Um, but I hope people do give them some grace throughout the book. It was I mean, it's, that's right where I wanted to start. It's totally stood out to me. And I, I interviewed someone who's had a child with addiction trouble. And in, in his training to understand it better, he was coached to love the kid, hate the disease. And I think that's the, that's what I get from your book, that you loved your parents. But it was this addiction thing that was was the issue. You said, you, you talked about them appreciating education. I, I quoted you here. You said, my parents believed in education the way some people believe in Jesus. And they were really faithful to that. And it comes through in the book. It's incredible. Yeah, um, that's an interesting line. My grandma's going to choke me when I say that <laughs> uh, because she believed in Jesus more than anybody I know. Um, and that's where that reference came from. You know, it's like growing up a lot, I spent a lot of time with my grandmother in the Bronx because my parents were just unable to do the things I needed for me. Um, and I was just on the spectrum of this this tightrope between God will solve everything and save my parents, which my grandma thought. And my parents was like, F all of that. Just study in college will save you and you don't have to live a life like us. Uh, so I've always been, I've been in between those two sediments. Uh, it's been interesting. Incredible. And you were in between Virginia and New York yeah. throughout the book. Um, so even, even an unstable household was made even less stable by all the moves back and forth. And can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So, um, I start the book uh, off talking about my journey, um, where I was born and how I was born by accident. I really wanted the title to stand out instantly within the first couple of pages. So I tell the story about all my siblings was born in the Bronx. My parents were both born in the Bronx. It's crazy how I'm the only one who wasn't born in the Bronx, but I'm like the most New York out of everybody because <laughs> pretty much all of my, I was the only one really raised in New York, even though I was not born here. Uh, and I start the story of like, my mother was deep into her own addiction. She had four kids, an addiction habit that she couldn't keep. So when she found out she was pregnant with me, it's funny. She went to almost every hospital in New York City. <laughs> and the clinic where I found out I was going to be a father was the clinic she went to abort me, which is also a very interesting story. And then she ends up going to Bellevue, which was the last place. And they wouldn't do the abortion because she had a hernia. And obviously her drug levels was high. So they didn't want to risk the surgery. And it's interesting because I work at NYU Medical Center. I work literally three minutes. I see Bellevue every day and I'm like, oh, that thank God I love you, hospital. You guys could have ended me. I wouldn't be here if you guys told my, didn't tell my mother to turn around. Um, so the, I wasn't supposed to be here was the fact that, you know, it was a sad story. My mother cried when she told me that 
how she really didn't want me. Um, not because it had anything to do with me is because she already had four kids in addiction. She couldn't control. And she cried and said, Jonathan, like out of all your siblings, you're the one who forgave me the most. You're the one who takes care of me. You're the one who gives me shelter. You're the one who gives me food. I just put my mother on her first plane ever um, and got her out of a place of the Bronx. She'd never seen the world. Um, and she always cries to this day. It's like the kid that saved me. It was the one I did everything in my power to get rid of. Um, and that was what the title stood for. I wasn't supposed to be here. And my parents owed a drug dealer in the Bronx a lot of money, so they escaped to Virginia. And I was born early. Um, and I came back as a kid, and I was back and forth between my grandmother trying to take me in Virginia because she didn't want me to be with my parents, between my other grandma wanting me to stay in the Bronx and live with her. Uh, and my, and then from me at 16, um, being put in foster away from my parents because they couldn't take care of me, and my brother adopted me and moving me back to Virginia because he was in the military. So my story was uh, like comprised of a lot of time in Virginia and a lot of time in New York due to a lot of circumstances that I had to go through in my life. And those two places raised me. Um, New York taught me grit. It taught me how to grow up, uh, grow up fast. Virginia taught me hospitality. It taught me respect. It taught me a slower pace of life, to be calm, to take what you can. And New York gave me that strength and grittiness I need to survive and thrive in a lot of rooms I've been in. Um, throughout my journey. So I'm thankful for po both places. Um, I usually always lie and just tell people I was born in New York. It's no flack to Virginia. I love Virginia. Uh, it just sounds cooler saying you was born in the Bronx. <laughs> but I was actually born in and Chesapeake, you Virginia. You don't sound like you're from Virginia either, I have <laughs> yeah, to say. Yeah, I did most of my youth, <laughs> middle school, high school in New York. I even did college in New York. So um, yeah, I'm, yep. I'm a New Yorker. Yep. And, I, and I live, I'm doing this interview from Brooklyn right now. I'm, I'm a New Yorker. Jonathan's memoir is full of remarkable characters, and the first of these to come into focus are his parents. Given their struggles with addiction, I kept thinking that even if they were able to survive, they'd eventually disappear from Jonathan's life. But they didn't, and while his parents' direct contact with him waxes and wanes, their devotion to Jonathan and desire to see him get educated and advance in the world never goes away. And he was kind in explaining that I got the meaning of his book title wrong. It really came from the fact that he was almost never born. But as the book progresses, he really does wind up in places where you'd think, given the odds against him, that he wasn't supposed to be. You don't get very far into Jonathan's book before thinking, this has to be made into a movie. Time will tell on that, but the characters and the story arc are amazing. For more on that, let's get back to our conversation. Your parents did the best they could, but that wasn't great. And you talk right right up front in the book about use that old African proverb that it takes a village. And you talk a lot about your village. And you had some really interesting things to say about it, I think, because I quote you here. You said, I had to rely on my chosen village as a matter of survival. This would be advice for your readers. Um, but it doesn't have to be that way for everyone. You can build your village out of a sense of desperate need or because you're embarking on a new path in life. And you need a village to help show you the way. So throughout your life, you really highlight, I think it's one of the strengths of your book, these incredible people that you that you encountered. And one of the stories you tell is about you're getting ready, and I'm jumping ahead, but you're getting ready to go to school where you have to wear a necktie. And it was a very poignant story because a guy like me takes for granted that I grew up with a dad who taught me how to tie a necktie. You didn't. 
and you've got this mess of, <laughs> of a shoelace tied knot around your neck. Can you tell us who helped you with that? Yeah, uh, it's so funny. This is like the third time this came up today. It's, this is I don't know why this story. <laughs> and this is how you know somebody read the book because I talked about it briefly, but it's literally one of my favorite moments of the book. I'm going to answer that question, but just to go back, right? I wrote this book for two things. I wrote this book to tell people the power of resilience and how resilience is my extraordinary gift. And I think it's a gift that all of us have. It doesn't make me unique. It's something that we all have. And the second reason I wrote this book is to highlight my village. And I didn't want this memoir of people to come across and create this stereotype and put me in a box and say, oh, this is just another Black story of a kid that went through a lot and went through the projects and now he's successful. I wrote this story to show how the power of communicating with people who may not look like you, who may not understand you, who may not know the things you're going through because they have never faced those challenges, but they can still be guideposts and leaders in your life and show you the way to live a better life. My village was compromised of numerous people who didn't look like me, who didn't think like me, who didn't understand the projects, who did never, who never have seen crack addiction at the level I've seen it, but yet they have helped me get to the point that I'm at today. And also I wanted to tell people, there are so many good people in this world, Bill, that just want to help people. I know a lot of times the media portray us being divided and they show the evil parts of society, but there are so many people who are good and want to help people. But a lot of people think in order to help people, they have to sacrifice their career or they don't want to commit or they have to do so much to be a mentor or part of somebody's village. A conversation, Bill, a smile, saying I care for you, a meal, giving a homeless man $5 can change the trajectory of their life for that moment. And throughout my book, I show a story where my dad worked construction. He never taught me how to tie a tie. And he was going through a lot where he didn't even have the bandwidth or the time to teach me how to tie a tie because he was facing his own addiction. And I remember my first day of high school, Frederick Dulles Academy in Harlem. I am getting ready to get on the bus. I have this principal that everybody loved and adored, rest in peace, Dr. Hodge, who was stern. Um, he believed in, and he wasn't a black man, this is a white man who believed in helping black boys. And at first I couldn't believe it. I was like, what does this white man know about helping black boys? But then you looked at his resume, he was sending black kids to Japan, teaching them Mandarin, um, putting black kids to all different types of Ivy League. He was a foster care child that I didn't even know until he passed away. And he grew up in the community as one of the only white kids in a predominantly black community. So he knew what we needed more than what more than a lot of people, even though he didn't look like us. And he became a part of my village. And him being a part of my village was tough love. You had to have your tie on. You had to have a belt. You had to have your, your shirt pressed. You had to be tucked in. He thought Black men needed to represent themselves a certain way because of all the negativity and the perception that we had. And while I'm getting on this bus, I'm struggling to tie this tie. I never tied the tie in my life. I had to wear a uniform to high school. I was pissed about that. And a homeless man teaches me how to tie my tie. I've never seen this man again to my life. He insulted me the whole time, even though he taught me well. I don't know this man's name. I don't know where he lives. I've never seen him again. And he taught me one of the powerful lessons that I need to carry on throughout my life. I tie ties every day. I wear suits and I do speeches and I did a TEDx talk and I'm doing all these amazing things. And every time I tie my tie, I see this man. And naturally, think about it. You know, I don't want to make like 
if a homeless man came up to 99% of America in New York City, they'll probably be like, get the hell away from me. <laughs> Why are you touching me? And in that moment, I froze. And me being open to allow this man to be a part of my village because he's a part of my village. Yeah, and I love I love the story too because he tied the tie beautifully and you thought you were all set and, and he untied it and he's like, now show me how to do it. He he was a persistent, he didn't just, it's a, it's a remarkable vignette in the book. And it taught me something else. That man was homeless, but he knew how to tie a tie perfectly. What life did he live before he was homeless? What was his story? I didn't really say this in the book, but it taught me more than just a tie. It taught me how to be open. It taught me how to be accepting to people of indifferences because now as a grown man, I sit back and think maybe he tied the tide every day. Maybe there was a mentor. His dad told him how to tie a tie and the loss of them or not having them or being confused within that moment. That was the only thing he can hold on to somebody for, you know, and I'm, and I'm making assumptions here, but it just shows you that everybody has a story. And that, and it is a perfect example that I tried to portray throughout the book that your village members don't need to save your life. They don't need to be there every day. They don't need to sacrifice their career or their relationships with their family and kids to help you throughout their journey. Small acts of kindness can help us change this world. And I hope that's what that moment showed. Yes, of course, Jonathan's book is about him. It's a memoir after all. But more than probably any autobiography I've ever read, his celebrates others, those who have shaped him over the course of his life. And at the same time, as you'll see, he helped them along the way as well. There's a reason that others Jonathan has spoken to have responded to the necktie story. It's really memorable. And I think he's right when he mentions the importance of small acts of kindness even if it's just a short conversation or a smile. He also says that we all have it in us to be resilient, especially if we're able to rely on the village that surrounds and supports us. Dr. Hodge is one of these people, that classic character who's tough on Jonathan and his fellow students, but he behaves in this way out of a genuine concern and love for them. Now back to my Blue Sky conversation with Jonathan Conyers. Dr. Hodge is another great character, as you said, stern taskmaster. You're at, you're at Frederick Douglass Academy. He's stern. Like you said, you not only had to have a tie, you had to have a belt, which you didn't have. But of course, he chewed you out, but then he gave you a belt uh, and asked you to bring one of your own the next time. And one of his rules was you had to do something after school and you weren't going to leave school before six o'clock. And so you're a big guy. You were thinking about football and some other things. And you wander past a classroom taught by Ms. De Calandria, De Calandria, we'll shorten her name soon, <laughs> Ms. Deco. She is a huge part of this book and just clearly an incredible human being. So t- talk to us about how you, how you fell into her class and you know, how, to, how did what she was teaching about debate spark your interest and in how to change your life, frankly. Yeah, so <sighs> I didn't like lunch in her. I just hated school lunch. Uh, and also I don't think I really mentioned in the book I had, well, I did mention I had an incident in Harlem, 
um, with one of my friends in the book who were into gangs. And I was very afraid of going to school in Harlem. I didn't know what gangs would be out there. I didn't know if the actions I portrayed in middle school, some of the bad, poor choices I made would follow me. It's a gang activity in Harlem, being a kid from the Bronx who had issues with rival gangs in Harlem. So also, I didn't like school lunch, but I was afraid of walking into the wrong person because the cafeteria is where everybody's hanging. All the people who don't want to go to class is in there just looking for trouble. And I didn't want to walk in there without my brothers in the Bronx, another way of saying my gang in the Bronx, not being there to support me. I was far away. So I just went to class, which I knew nothing would happen to me in class, hopefully. And I stayed really low key. So throughout my lunch period, I would just walk the halls. Um, And Dr. Hodge was, I mean, he was like a mosquito. Like he just wouldn't stop. He was just all over me every moment, every moment. It felt like he was bullying me at one point, but he wasn't. He was just concerned, and he was just coming to me constantly. What are you doing? What are you doing? So I, it was two things. I ain't had nothing to do. I couldn't just keep roaming the halls, and my back was against the wall. This man was serious. He was threatening to suspend me, like, just for not choosing activity. But legal issues were involved in this situation, so I pretty much had no choice. So I end up walking past, and I hear this lady just asking a bunch of black kids, what's your why? And being loud and forceful. And I'm just like, this looks interesting. It looks boring, but it looks interesting. And I looked at her and I said, hey, can I sit down here? And she's like, what grade are you in? I'm like, I'm in ninth. And I'm like, oh, this is a senior class. Ninth graders have lunch right now. And I'm like, ah, just, can I just send it back? And she's like, well, I'm not going to turn your way. Just sit down. And a couple of days go by and these kids are talking about prison reform, crack epidemic, all types of interesting conversations. And I'm intrigued. I'm extremely intrigued. Don't know most of the stuff that's going on, to be honest, and I'm intrigued. And now I'm starting to hear kids talking about, yes, I'm applying to Yale. I'm applying to MIT. And I'm like, but these are the cool kids. In my neighborhood, the cool kids all did illegal stuff. So I've never been in an in a environment where like every kid was doing the right thing. And look like me and share similar stories to me and had parents who were on drugs or a brother who was in jail. But yet they have limited those excuses and still wanted to change their lives. So that class forced me to reevaluate who I was as a person. It forced me to think about my anger. It put me in a situation where I looked at kids who looked like me, went to me, who didn't make excuses for what they were going through. So I kept coming back and I was intrigued. And then something happened. A kid said something that triggered me. And they talked about kids who were poor and people living off Section 8 and how we live in luxurious lives in the projects. And I'm just like, and I, I tell anybody this, whoever wants to take a tour of the projects with me, let me show you how not luxurious it is. <laughs> uh, there's, there's no advantages there. But um, I spoke. I stood up and I spoke and I slipped up and I shared some of my personal story, which I never did. I wasn't a talker back then. And it was like I broke the code of Black people. You don't share your story. You don't tell your trauma. You keep mama secrets. You keep grandma secrets. You keep daddy secrets. You deal with it. You internalize it. And it's a horrible way of thinking because when you internalize it, it just makes you mad and you end up doing poor, making poor choices and hurting people eventually. And I said it. And something else amazing happened. Nobody bashed me. Nobody laughed. Nobody made a mockery. I felt warmth. I felt love. I felt understanding. And this kid did something that was even more remarkable. He apologized and said, based on the way you spoke, I now see different. 
I understand, Jonathan. And it was the first time when my voice mattered. It was the first time where I cried for an attention in a different way. And people who looked like me and people who didn't look like me were receptive to it. Nobody bashed me and said, be tough, be a black boy, hide your anger, invoke violence, prove your worth, hurt your community. It was like, we hear you and we see you. How can we help you through this? And in that moment, Deco seen something in me. And she asked me to join the debate team. And at first, I wasn't going to do it. I'm not going to join the goddamn debate team. (laughs) And then Dr. Hodge bumped me a whole way and said, what are you doing? I said, I'm joining the debate team. (laughs) Uh, And it was the best decision of my life. It changed my life. I found my new voice. I I learned how to speak. I learned how to accept. um, And I learned that I can thrive in rooms where people who didn't look like me. Um, So it was life-changing. And Deco, like like Dr. Hodge, you were in an environment at this point at this school of high expectations, it seemed to me. And so, you know, high school debate team and I forget which year you were in high school, but eventually it's, hey, guys, we're going to Harvard University to debate. Harvard University to debate. I think I think we're in the JV level, but you guys were in high school. I'll, I'll quickly tell the story. I mean, you, you lose the debate and you're kind of like, ah, whatever. And she's not having it. Can you tell that story, that w- what that was like? First of all, being at Harvard University, coming from where you were, and then what the debate experience and what her response was like? Yeah, so this was 2011, and I was in 10th grade, which was unheard of for 10th grade, even at JV level, to be debating at Harvard. And at this point, if you read the book or if you looked at the Humans in New York story, Deco is no longer a she. Deco's a he. Deco ends up telling the team that, hey— I am trans. I uh, am a boy. I I want you to refer to me as Deco. And for us, just being honest, like growing up in a black community with a bunch of heterosexual men who looked down upon that, who thought black boys have to be strong and that that was a sign of weakness. It was a different mindset in the way I had to think as a child at that age. But Deco taught me one of the most powerful lessons of my life. His pronoun and who he felt he was in his authentic, in his skin and his authentic self didn't define his heart, didn't define his brilliance, didn't define his love for his students, and didn't define the fact that he was going to help us get out of some of these tough circumstances we were dealing with. So going to Harvard and debating and going in with low expectations, like, I can't beat these rich boys with all these briefcases and Lincoln cars. And <laughs> he's like, yes, we're going to yeah. talk about prison reform. My dad owns three prisons, maybe. Oh, it's like, how am going to be him? Or we're going to talk about finance and your dad is the CEO of the World Bank. I don't even know how you can get that job. So it was kind of like you're going in, you know, I'm trying to figure out how to eat at night living in a shelter. And now I'm competing against kids whose parents are lawyers, whose parents are doctors, who are having these conversations at dinner every day. And for Deco to really feel like we can compete against that and to show that our resilience, which is one of the main things of the book, and our stories actually gives us advantage. It doesn't give us a disadvantage. And I was very close. I was very close to breaking. Um, I did really well, but I didn't care that I lost. And it wasn't a fact that I lost. It was the fact that I lost because judges was insensitive and they felt like 
me having a tough life gave me an advantage to talk about prisons. Me being black gave me an advantage to talk about prisons. And Deco felt like that was totally rude and disrespectful because actually I was at a disadvantage for not having textbooks, <laughs> for not having a stable home, for not being able to eat at night. How is this kid writing papers with no internet? Like, how is this kid writing lengthy debate cases with when he went to a middle school where 7% of the school can read? Like, he has every disadvantage. So the fact that he's here is actually not an advantage because he's black and you think he understands prisons. And to me, it was like, Deco, you're tripping. Excuse me. Yeah, that, that was my slang back then. Deco, you are tripping. You thought they <laughs> was going to let me win at Harvard? Like, yeah, I'm yeah, here. Yeah. I'm happy to be here. I'm having fun. I'm sneaking to these college parties. You better relax. And Deco wasn't having it. Uh, he chastised me. He told me that I have to think more of myself, that regardless of their opinion on me, if I don't believe in myself, if I don't think I'm worthy of respect and fairness, then my life is going to be tough. It's going to continue to be tough. Uh, and in that moment, I'll, I'll be honest, you know, I may have wrote it differently in the book, but in that moment, it didn't stick. It was like, what did, what did this dude know about where I come from? What did this dude know about crack pipes in the hallway every day? What did this dude know about not seeing your parents for months? Like, what are my odds of ever getting these people to convince that I'm worthy, that I'm worthy of a shot? Like, I'm at Harvard. I won. But I didn't. But I didn't. And I, and I had to understand that. And throughout my life, I started to get that message. And I'm happy that he was one of the first people to see my worth and show me how special I was. And, and we all need that. We all need that. As mentioned earlier, Jonathan might be the star of this show, but he certainly shares the stage with other remarkable people. And Deco is one of the leads. We'll learn more about him soon, but the instant influence he had on Jonathan is amazing. How many teachers would allow this freshman wandering the halls because he doesn't like lunch sit in the back of debate class? And it's there that Jonathan sees older students whom he describes as cool kids doing good things and not making excuses. And it's amazing to hear how he inspires Jonathan to stand up for himself and feel worthy of respect. Yes, he made it to Harvard, but he didn't win. Deco convinces him to seek more, and it's life-changing. There's another great moment in your book, one of many, that reminded me of the story you just told about the first time you spoke up in Deco's class, but and, and you were worried about the reaction, you actually got a very positive one. The day that, that Deco walked into class before transitioning, she had short hair, you know, you, you thought, you know, she looked a little different, but then this next day she comes in suit and tie, really dressed in traditionally male uh, and makes this announcement. Yeah. Excuse me. I, I misspoke. Uh, Deco had transitioned as far as outfits, but Deco didn't announce that Deco was a okay. he until after Harvard, but we, we, we knew okay. then, but we didn't have, yes. proof. let's just yes. say that. That's what I always say. But when, <laughs> but when, but when Deco finally did, there was this beautiful moment where you're all wonderful about it. And as I recall, a couple of girls go up and give her a hug. She's, you know, in this, he is in this new outfit. And one of the girls says, you could do a better job with the shoes. <laughs> so it sort yeah. of broke the tension with humor, but it, it sounds like there was an environment there that you felt when you spoke up in class and Deco felt when he 
announce this transition. It's a pretty special environment. Yeah, I think a lot of times that people in our village and our mentors, you know, a lot of people feel like, you know, I'm doing like a lot of kids feel like, oh, this is my idol. This I'm doing everything. This person is doing everything for me. This person loves me. This person is giving me the resources I need that I'm not getting at home. And a lot of times that kids, we don't understand that we're doing the same for them. There was nothing Deco could have did or said that would have made my loyalty go against him. Um, and I'm so happy. I am so happy that Deco was the first person to introduce me into the LGBTQ community because he taught me to shy away from all those stereotypes that society wanted me to think, that people in my community community wanted me to adjust to. There was nothing nobody could say to me to tell me that Deco wasn't special, that he wasn't an awesome person, that he wasn't loving, that he wasn't caring. And if he said, Jonathan, this is my pronoun, those was the least of my worries because my heart was already in it and I knew how amazing of a person he was. So every time people try to give me the stereotype of that community or this is wrong and this is that, I would just be like, Tico can't be wrong. Look at this amazing human being. Uh, so it was a blessing for me as a young kid trying to learn about that community, going to school in Harlem with all these stereotypes of what a black man should be and what we need, how we need to carry ourselves and how we need to act and how our woman should behave and all of these old school way of thinking. Growing up with a father who worked and my mother stay at home with all of these heterosexual ideas and ideologies. So for Deco to be, be the first person to tell me about his transition, it, it changed my trajectory of how I thought about that community and how awesome I knew that community was. It's amazing. And also in terms of expectations, getting back to you, um, you were you were surrounded by a lot of people. And as you made a reference in the book, someone saying, what's what's with all you young black boys wanting to go to college? You got in your head. You were not only going to college. you had been on the Harvard campus. You're thinking Ivy League. You're going for it. Um, you have some summers at Andover, the prep school um, that were very formative. You got to see what between Harvard and these other campuses, Scarsdale, New York, Regis High School, these incredible places, and you start setting your own expectations higher. You have a girlfriend you're in love with, and you're as you're in the process, you find out she's you're going to have a baby. And it, you know, at, at that point in the book, it's like, what else could go <laughs> for Jonathan that makes the path tougher? And you have some back and forth, and she's like, "We're we're having this baby." One of the things I found beautiful in the book is my sense was back to where we started that it was partly you saw your parents try to be great parents and and largely fail in many ways because of addiction. And you weren't going to let that happen with your baby. And yet you wanted to get this college degree. So can you talk about how you sorted through all that? And then you wound up not at Ivy League, but at Stony Brook, where you had an incredible experience. But can you talk a little bit about that? Because it's like, I'm reading the book. It's like, okay, Jonathan, here we go. And then you have yet another challenge. Yeah. Um, that was one of the most difficult times of my life. When I found that I was going to be a father, father, it changed a lot for me. A lot of my motivations and dreams of going to college and knowing that that was the ticket to a better life. And, and I knew that because since I was born, it's one of the things my parents, education, education, do you want to live a life like me? This is the way out. And I was the youngest of five. So I've seen four people go to college. And although they weren't like rich or doing, you know, 
fulfilling what they wanted to do in their career just yet because they were still young and figuring it out, they had much more resources than we ever had. Um, And they had a foundation, something they could fall on. Um, And that education meant everything to them. So I had the blueprint already. I had the blueprint of what it needed to take. But I knew that being a father, that was something major for me. That was something that I cared about. That was something I wanted to do right. And I was depressed every day of the idea that I knew I couldn't do it right. And I had a mentor tell me, your child, and this was Deco actually. Why did I say a mentor? Deco told me, your child won't remember the first four years. They won't remember why you're getting that degree. But they will remember at 11 when you can't pay the rent, Jonathan, because you didn't get your education. They will know at eight when all their kid friends are traveling and they're doing activities and you can't play for swimming lessons and you can't play for piano. It's going to be hard, but I'm going to be here for you. And not just Deco, but so many people in my village, Dr. Watson, Pam, Francisco, um, my girlfriend who was my girlfriend, then who is now my wife, even her, uh, they were all there for me. Um, and they supported me throughout this journey. And it was those lessons that, pushed me there. And there was a lot of luck. I'll be irresponsible to make it seem like, hey, I didn't have some luck. Um, You read the book. I was close to being incarcerated. I made some very poor choices. I thought selling drugs was going to be the way I was going to provide for my daughter. And I did that for a while. And I pushed the same things in my community that was destroying my household. Um, And I was a walking contradiction to what I wanted to be in this world. Um, And I didn't know better, but the people in my village members at that time were drug dealers. And that was the only thing they could show me. And then I had some that was ex-drug dealers who did a lot of time in jail. And they was trying to tell me that this is not the way. Um, And through the grace of God and through luck, I was able to get out of that situation. And when God spared me, I listened. I understood. I knew how close I came to my life being essentially close to being over. And that was the wake up call I needed to pack my daughter up and drive to the end of Long Island and go to Stony Brook University. Jonathan's relationship with Deco is complex and heartwarming. He says that Deco's pronouns were the least of his worries and didn't define his heart, and that there was nothing anyone could say to make Jonathan stop loving him. And Deco gave Jonathan vital advice when he was at a crossroads trying to decide whether to go to college after fathering a baby. It's going to be really tough, Deco said, but getting that degree would be vital to Jonathan's and his family's future. And now, back to the final segment of my Blue Sky conversation with Jonathan Conyers. You had this amazing experience at Stony Brook. You decide you want to get into medicine. There's one point in the book where you decide you want to take eight classes one semester and you get negotiated down to seven. I mean, you, you're going. Your wife's having a tough time with a young child you're off there's some back and forth but you hang in there and you start getting interested in in respiratory therapy um, and that's where a lot of your training goes but i want to tell a quick deco because somewhere around there you everyone makes it to your graduation and deco around that time i guess was considering leaving teaching and getting into law and it was a really interesting moment because i think it became clear how much of her, his village you were. You were part of Deco's village and seeing you graduate and doing so well made him realize I'm not 
I don't want to be a lawyer. I'm a teacher. Yeah. Uh, Tico was having a hard time with his family, and I won't speak too much of it. That's his story to tell. But um, the oldest grew up with immigrant family who also wasn't rich. You know, it's not a black and white thing. There's people of all different <laughs> races that are not rich. They're poor. So Tico grew up with an immigrant family who also wasn't, wasn't wealthy by any means. And you go to Yale University, you expect to be a lawyer or some big shot. So to go back and teach black kids in the projects and barely make a living wage, I don't think Deco's father could grasp that. So Deco was like, I'm going to do what all my other Yale friends did. I'm going to go to law school. And um, I invited Deco to my graduation ceremony where I think I won like every award. <laughs> yeah. I'm not trying yeah. to like toot my horn no, here, yeah. but uh, I think I probably won like seven awards. I won like a SUNY award, academic excellence. And I was a sophomore at this time in college. And I invited Deco. The reason why I invited Deco, there's another powerful moment in the book where I went to gra- I went to drop out. Um, me and my girlfriend, who is now my wife, uh, she left me, and I just couldn't give her the time. She was going through postpartum. It was a, it was a very bad time for us, and she left me. And I just I was still in Pampers. I couldn't afford to. I took on the apartment because of her and the baby. So now that she was gone, it was like I'm taking care of apartment, empty apartment, and I was still in Pampers and things to help my daughter. And I went to the mailbox and I seen a letter from Deco with $500 checks. Like, you've been ignoring me. I'm, I'm thinking you may need this. It stopped me from dropping out of college that day. Um, so when I got that check, I cried like a baby. I can't do my uh, meeting with my counselor. And I just went to work. I just wanted to prove Deco or my mentors that I wasn't going to let them down. And by the end of the year, I won almost every award. And I wanted Deco to know that his efforts... And his resources got me to this point. I wanted him to share that moment with me. So when he came, I had no idea. He, you know, I'm thinking him, I'm thinking him. I'm like throwing awards in his face. Like, look, I know you broke, but that $500 was worth it. Don't worry. I'm going to be rich one day. I, I got us. I'm going to take care of us. Don't worry. And he goes, he looks at me like, yo, like I'm not going to law school. And I'm just confused. I'm like, what are you talking about? Aren't you a teacher? Like, what are you talking about law school? And he tells me the story, how he was thinking about it. And, you know, he had to do something powerful. He's like, what am I talking about? I am doing something powerful. Regardless of the world, don't understand the impact of teachers. Regardless if my dad may not understand the impact of teachers. I understand because of kids like you, John. Like, you proved to me, I don't need to be a doctor or lawyer. You're going to be the doctor and lawyer. And I'm going to build 100 Jonathans, and that's how we're going to change the world. And at that moment, I learned that I was a part of his village and I was saving him just as much as he was saving me. And it was a 360, you know, moment. And, you know, a lot of times, especially I salute a lot of my black friends and family. They they don't they like, Jonathan, you work so hard. We don't want to hear no white savior stories. And I'm like, I, I can't think about what the world thinks. I can't think about a journalist spinning a story the way they want to spend it. I can't think about that. But. I will be damned if I don't highlight these amazing people, regardless of the color of their skin, regardless of the pronoun, regardless of their gender, regardless of where they come from, their zip code, or what advantages or disadvantages they had in their life. I will share stories about the amazing people who helped me. Um, and that's what this story is about. Uh, so, you know, I hope it was obvious throughout it that as much as he was a part of my village and as much as I needed him, I learned later throughout my life, he needed me also. I was going to say, you were a savior to him. And, and uh, you know, $500 at the time was a lot of money. 
let's talk about a bigger amount of money and uh, something that you did in uh, Humans of New York, <laughs> um, which is not in the book. So Deco is building, Deco left Frederick Douglass. And I think part of it was not feeling comfortable there by how his transition was, was accepted. I think I read that into what the way you described it. Yeah, it, it was a safety issue. So yeah, I wrote that in the book, but to be honest, at the time, yeah, I didn't right, know. Right. I didn't know to ask. You were mad. The, you were mad that he broke. left. Oh, yeah. I hated him, to be honest. And I don't hate people. Like, I felt like I hated him at that moment. So fast forward, and, and Deco's at a different school. And and as I understand the story, you come to understand that he's he's short several thousand dollars to keep the debate program going where he was. Correct me where I messed this up. And you pitch a story to Humans of New York, which is a very popular Instagram feed. And you decide that Deco's going to be the heart of the story. And there's a crowdfunding element. Can you take it from there? Yeah, yeah. Let me go back a little bit. So uh, it's it's funny. It's uh, yeah. All right, it's exclusive. Bill Burke. Just uh, you, the first to get the real story. Um, Let's go. So another thing that don't make the story is my journey throughout COVID. Throughout COVID, uh, Deco comes and tell me about the Brooklyn Debate League. I'm a part of the Brooklyn Debate League. I co-founded it with Deco, but. I am, you know, people say I'm on the front line, I'm on the front line. There's no fronter of the line than respiratory therapists. We are the people tubing the, the COVID patients. I have to be face-to-face with them. I have hazmat suits. I'm putting tubes and I'm using the ventilators to keep them going. So throughout COVID, I'm probably working at least 28, 13-hour shifts a month. And I'm not exaggerating. I'm talking about to the point where my, your, your health is declining. You're losing coworkers. Mentally, I'm not there. You're having crazy thoughts. I don't even know if I'm going to live anymore. You're watching people die. You're taking on all these people's energy and stress. And I didn't talk about it in the book because I just felt like it was too early. Um, maybe that would be book number two. We, we'll, we'll get there maybe one day. Um, and because I'm working so much, I won't lie also, the money is great. Uh, there's a lot of overtime. There's a lot of hazard pay. And I am the only one funding the Brooklyn Debate League. So I am literally giving taking care of my family. And then the other portion of my check goes to Deco so he can continue to give access to black and black, uh, black and brown kids, um, LGBTQ kids, uh, kids who are wealthy to understand our communities and to come together and create dialogue. And I, I, I loved, I believed in what he was doing, even though I had a title, I wasn't really doing the work like him because I was fighting for our country. And it got to the point where it was just like, just wasn't enough. Um, and backstory is I didn't pitch a story to Brandon. I knew Brandon for years before he did my story. I actually worked with Brandon on some other stories in humans in New York, specifically the Bobby love story. So me and Brandon were already friends and Brandon kind of talked to me about doing my story and me just being who I am. I was just like, nah, let's not make it about me. And Brandon's like, what are you talking about? I'm like, let me tell you about this person named Dico. And Brandon's like, all right. And then I, I tell Brandon and Brandon eyes gets googly. He does his thing where he gets this genius idea and he's like, that's it. And then he obsesses over it for months. And then I went to Brandon and was like, listen, this is what I, this is what the nonprofit is going through. Man, we probably need about $10,000 to survive so we don't have to tell these kids they can't travel or go to Harvard. And Brandon's like, okay, you know, we'll see. And it's like, you know, he don't want to put no expectations. Uh, so then we do the story. Uh, Deco's like, yeah, John, I think I'm going to close the BDL. I can't do this. And I'm like, just give me one second. You don't need to close the BDL. He's like, huh? Like, can't keep taking all your money. You got kids. You know, you got to save for their college. I can't keep taking I'm like, Deco, just wait. So I let Deco know. I introduced Deco to humans in New York, introduced him to Brandon. 
Um, Deco is just like, okay, it's going to be a little bit of money. I'm happy. Boom. And then the story breaks. We break the internet. Kelly Clarkson comes calling. Everybody's calling. People are like, then people started to learn about my real like whole story. And now it's like, you need to write a book. And yeah. this is way more than just these 13 paragraphs. And, and then we wake up the next morning to $1.3 million um, in donations. The next morning. The next morning. And he he was in the hole like eight thousand. Yeah, so Deco Something was in like the that. hole like eight thousand. I, I was in the hole a couple of thousand. I, I wouldn't say so. I, you overshot a yeah, little. Yeah, we were we were in the hole hole. Like I wouldn't say I was in the <laughs> hole. I was just gave a lot of money at that point, uh, and it wasn't really doing much to keep us sustainable. Um, and Deco was using his money, and Deco's a school teacher. He doesn't have it, you know. Um, and it ain't like he had some trust fund. He grew up poor, also, so. We're in the hole. Um, and then, like, literally, in, like, 36 hours, we get $1.3 million. And then Deco asked Brandon to be on the board. And then Brandon says, I only joined the board if Jonathan comes and works at least part-time for the video. And I'm like, Brandon, I just got a book deal because of you. And now I'm still in the <laughs> hospital. I can't give away my first love. Like, I cannot leave the hospital during COVID right. and war, regardless of the advance of what money I'm making now, like, I got to fight. This is what I do. This is what I love. It's not about money. Like I come here every day to save lives. And then Deco and all of them sit me down. It's like, this is our nonprofit. It's me and you or it's nothing. And then it's like, what the heck? I'm not giving back 1.3 million. So now uh, I'm co-founder of the Brooklyn Debate League. And we we just made our one year anniversary of being a 503C. Um, we have done amazing things this year. We had over 11 kids qualify for states. Uh, we have four partner schools. We have four kids make it to the national tournament in Kentucky. Uh, we debated at the UPenn Cla- uh, Classic. Um, one of our kids ended up getting a full ride to um, Lafayette. Another one of our kids ended up getting a full ride to Wesleyan. And these are all kids with tough stories similar to mine. Um, we have uh, had numerous tournaments. We have had 80 kids come uh, consistently to our tournaments. Uh, our summer camp starts next week, Monday at City Tech. Um, and we have about 55 kids coming. Um, we have turned this into a monster. Uh, we have a beautiful board. Uh, it ain't easy. Um, you'd think $1.3 million would be a lot, but when you have kids who are hungry and at risk and who are traveling at somebody's top colleges, uh, we spent a lot of money to share and we give everything for free. So, you know, it's been tough. You know, we're trying to figure out how do we sustain this? How do we grow this? And how do we create partnerships? And how do we not turn any kids away? So, you know, I know the world will see 1.3 and say, wow, they did it. But any business person know that nonprofits and if you're doing the right things the right way, it's expensive uh, consultants and scaling and therapy and all of these things. Uh, but we are extremely proud of ourselves. Um, I never in a million years thought that I would be side by side with my one of my coaches, one of my heroes running this organization. Um, if you talk to him, he'll, he thinks I'm the new coming of Christ, I think, and thinks that like I've done an amazing job as a teacher now because now I'm a teacher. I'm a clinician. Teacher. I don't know what I am, Bill. I'm like 100. I have 100 careers. Uh, but I never, ever thought that this would be so rewarding that to be able to talk to numerous of kids and be a father figure to them and travel the country with them and yell at them the way Dico yelled at me, that they do matter in these rooms and that they should not just be happy with being there, that they deserve the right of fairness and equal treatment. And I experienced it as a coach this year. And 
it was so funny. I'm just so mad pacing down the halls and Deco's just laughing like the kid that told me it didn't matter, huh? <laughs> so it, and it's weird. So like Deco's now teaching me how to be a teacher to help kids in my community. And it's like how life comes full circle. So I'm just so thankful to be side by side with him and that we continue this journey together. Well, I'm so thankful you've spent this time with me. And I, you, you said, you know, clinician, you're a father, you're a teacher, you're now an author. And uh, I think you were wise not to put some of that stuff in because you're a young man. This is not going to be your last book, I don't think, either. You're certainly going to live a lot of more amazing chapters. And, um, and I'm glad you told that last story because I was aware of it. And, and it just, like you said, the full circle nature of your story is just remarkable. And how Deco did so much for you. And then years later, you did so much for him. And so I can't thank you enough. The book is called I Wasn't Supposed to Be Here. I promise you, you will love it. Anyone out there thinking about reading this book, please pick up a copy. It's fantastic. And Jonathan, thanks again for your time. It was really a pleasure. Thank you, Bill. And I appreciate you for having me. And shout out to the Optimist Institute. Uh, you guys are doing amazing things. I've listened to some of your episodes and I'm just honored to be a guest on such an amazing platform with an amazing person. Oh, thanks so Thank much. You. Good luck with the book and enjoy, enjoy this process. You've earned it. Thank you, sir. Appreciate you. Take care. Deco support Jonathan's education with a check out of the blue, then later be on the brink of bailing on a teaching career to satisfy his parents' expectations, only to decide to stick with it after being inspired by Jonathan's achievements is incredible. And it's really inspiring when Deco says, I'm going to do something powerful. I'm going to create hundreds of Jonathans. Thinking about optimism, I believe that one way to stay positive about our lives is to be sure that we're using our own personal measures to evaluate them. And how about my hot exclusive scoop, first to be told about Jonathan's COVID story? Who says Blue Sky doesn't feature breaking news? But seriously, imagine what Jonathan's days were like as a respiratory therapist in New York during the pandemic's onset. And later, the Humans of New York story and $1.3 million raised overnight feels too good to be true, but it is. I told you this story would make a great movie, but we all know that even with the best movies, the book is usually better, and Jonathan Conyers' I Wasn't Supposed to Be Here is terrific. I hope you enjoyed this Blue Sky conversation. And if you did, you might want to subscribe to this podcast to be sure you don't miss any future episodes. And if stories like Jonathan's help you be more optimistic about the world around you, consider following the Optimism Institute on social media. Until next time, I'm the founder of the Optimism Institute and host of Blue Sky, Bill Burke. And I thank you for listening.